0: All right, please stand up with me and we'll begin with a prayer together. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who lovest mankind with the pure light of Thy divine knowledge and open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of Thy gospel teachings and plant in us also the fear of Thy blessed commandments. The trampling down all carnal desires we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as are well-pleasing unto thee, for thou art the illumination of our souls and bodies, O Christ our God. And unto thee we ascribe glory together with thine unoriginate Father and thine all-holy, good and life-giving Spirit, now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. I'm going to shut the door. All right, Christ is in our midst. He is in the Thank you. It's been a while since uh, we've been together. Yeah. Aside from last week. Um, has anyone been reading anything in, that's been particularly helpful in recent days? I've been reading the Bible. The Bible. <laughs> you know what? When, this is the hardest. when people show up here to explore Orthodoxy, the first thing that I want to get in their hands is the Orthodox Study Bible. That's what I have. Yeah, because if if you approach the Bible alone the the Bible, where did it come from? You know, there there's so many questions about it. Where did it come from? Why is it important? And then how do I even read and interpret it? And the Orthodox Study Bible is full of lots of helpful little articles. The footnotes are accessible that make, you know, it make it it makes it realistic to begin to read it. So um,
1: I just read a
2: teeny bit. Of
0: yeah. verse, it's Genesis, which is like, so I know, would start I would tell you to start with the the New Testament. <coughs> the Gospels. The Gospel of Matthew. Well, I have read those. So you, you have? Mary I mean Barbara gave me the study Bible. Yes. That lesson plan that you read as Oh, so you're reading like over course, the course of a year? Yes. Okay, so it's split up into different sections. It's, oh good. Okay. So okay. Yeah, it is difficult. Be patient with yourself and uh, take your time. Yeah. So, but that is, I keep a, I keep a case of Orthodox study Bibles in my office, just in case anyone needs one. Yeah. You need one. I'll get one for you. Um, just, you know, I don't, I don't want someone who shows up here to have to, you know, go buy a $30 or whatever it is. Probably more now. Everything's expensive yes. now. So, so I try to, you know, I try to make it as, as easy as possible <laughs> as long as they're going to take it treat it with with respect, you know. Um, I'm already wearing that. But the reason he gave me mine
2: was because yeah. I've already been through this. is my third copy. I've been yeah. through it for just you know, reading the Bible every day for the last two years. Yeah. And I just started pouring yes, that thing up. Mm-hmm. This has lasted a little longer, but um, my study habits have changed. If you talk about You know, I'm not following the guideline exactly. What I'm doing is I pray a few times a day, and after three times I pray, I read a couple chapters out of the Bible, Mm -hmm. starting with the New Testament. But what I'm doing is also I'm going down and reading the the notes, and then getting back up and reading the line that pertains to it. And I, look, I went to Catholic school for 12 years. I've learned more in the last two months than I learned in 12 years of Catholic school. Uh, And understanding the Bible, I mean, one of the things I, I seem to understand, I've talked to Father Jeremiah about this, is a lot of people who look at the book of Revelations and they think that that's the end of the world. Three quarters of the book of Revelations is just discussing from Genesis up to Christ. The big lion that's coming out of the, that's Babylon, five different countries. That's Babylon taking over um, the Jewish community. A lot of people don't realize that Revelation is only the last couple. Chapters are actually
0: about so, people. so you've been reading well, you know, and and it's not so. The book of Revelation is not specifically not prescribed to be read in the services of the church throughout the year because because it is a, it's a difficult book and it requires sensitivity and interpretation, and there's a lot of room for confusion. But because and the church actually, the Orthodox church struggled with the question of whether or not to include it in the The New Testament because of the difficulty of interpreting, not because it wasn't inspired. I mean, the authority of I mean, the uh, the what do I want to say the um, validity of it? I can't think of the right word. No, no, I mean, no. So all I want to say is that there it was it's specifically not read in the liturgical cycle of the church year, even though it was included in the New Testament. And it's, it's considered to be beneficial for a private study and edification. And there, there aren't a lot of commentaries on it. There's one by St. Andrew. Is it, I don't know if he's a saint. might just be an early, like an early church father. But by Andrew of Caesarea, who wrote a commentary on the Apocalypse or Revelation, and then we have a five-volume set downstairs, actually, that was written by a contemporary Orthodox priest and elder. We can, you know, we consider him an elder because he was a wise teacher, um, and he realized that there was a need for that. So he gave, he basically gave sermons like after services and things and, and teachings on the Book of Revelation, and it ended up being published as five volumes. commentary and revelation so if you are interested in in that that's probably where i would lead you to start you know slowly reading through one volume at a time and it would be interesting to do our own study group at some point on that we're doing the, the divine liturgy right now there's so much that i've thought about doing you know there's just there's so many options well good we have a lifetime a, he's been here for 20 years, I guarantee he hadn't gotten that far. Right? <laughs> yeah. So anyone else reading anything that's been helpful or inspiring? Yeah. Father Joseph from uh,
3: Thomas? I think his name is Father, Father
0: David. David. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry.
3: <laughs> that's okay. Uh, he gave me this book about martyrs, about different saints. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's been really, uh, you know, spiritually beneficial Good. It throughout the week. Yeah, since I went there last Sunday, it goes like every day of the year, mm-hmm. a different scene Yeah, and I think it's interesting you brought up Revelation because I think reading Revelation prepares us for martyrdom. Yep.
0: Yeah. Right. I think that's Yeah, yeah. One of the main subjects. You're right. You're absolutely correct. Yeah, I wrote a paper on the Book of Revelation for um, my my Orthodox studies, and that was one of the the main point that that was that I made in my paper was that it wasn't about anticipating what is to come, but enduring what is present.
3: You know? And we should all be
0: ready for martyrdom. I mean, honestly. I'm curious about, like, so I was a
3: Protestant for like four years almost, and uh, we go over to the Revelations a lot. That's one of the main books that brought me to Orthodoxy. Uh Mm -hmm. I think Revelations 11 talks about Mary. Mm -hmm. Right? A lot of Protestants don't see
0: that. Yeah. Well, and also you see images of heavenly worship with the, the The elders with their white robes and the bowls of incense and there's when you step into the Orthodox Church if you've studied the Book of Revelation at all you'll see whoa there's a lot of similarity there you know and the, the worship of the church is modeled after the worship in, um, and the as revealed in the scripture like that. <laughs> yeah that's exactly right yeah yeah exactly great. I've been reading St. St. Porphyrios. St. St. I know, we have some tricky names.
2: That gentleman, he had one year of schooling as a kid. And he taught himself how to play the piano. He actually sat in on medical classes and he could do medical procedures if he had to. Yeah, yeah, he was that type of person. If he he put his mind to something, he could accomplish it. his, uh, and and to be honest with you, probably the stories I've read, he's probably one of the most humble human beings in the world. He would he never walked around. And went, I know how to do that. I know how to do that. No, he, just he always just went and did stuff, and people would just go.
0: He always acted surprised. He always acted kind of like surprised in a way, either surprised by what God was doing, or um, or he approached it. Like he or he kind of minimize like okay. it just oh is that's just what God, that's what's normal well, yeah that's that's what God like wants you said me to do. oh that's what God wants me to do okay. like he was he was very insightful like he he could talk to you <laughs> if you were feeling sick and he could say oh it's your no it's you know it's your liver not your stomach it's your you know he could, yeah, he could diagnose it was very interesting he had a unique ability to see into people but he would even say. Like, oh, yeah, sometimes God lets me see, and sometimes he doesn't. Because yeah. people would go to him like a, like a vending machine almost sometimes, you know, like to, to get a miracle. Well, the, and he'd say, I can't. I can't today for some for yeah. God doesn't, you
2: know. That, that God it. it's like, yeah. so the first time he noticed it, I guess, was he was at a monastery, and he saw his elders were nowhere where he could see them. But he told them exactly what they were doing. That's right. And where they were at. They were like, oh, Yeah. Okay, how did you do yeah.
0: that? Yeah, I saw you coming through the hill, he said. Yeah. And they realized at that time that he had insight.
2: Yeah, yeah he was, he's. I'm almost done with the book, but he's. That, that was amazing.
0: Yeah. yeah, that book, Wounded by Love, is a very right. good book. And, mm-hmm.
2: uh, and the whole, his whole thing is, especially the last two books that I've read, both the, the elders their wish was to be off by themselves at the monastery. Like Father um, Porphyrios. Porphyrios. His, he got into the Orthodox religion. One of the first, first books he ever read was about a monk who lived off by himself. St. John the Hut Dweller. Yeah, the hut Dweller. Yeah. And that's who, was, who he wanted to emulate his whole life. Yeah. But well, unlike before, the book before was... He, He always wanted to be off on his own, but kept getting pushed into doing it. Whereas, Father, Porphyrios, Porphyrios, knew he wanted to be off by himself, but he knew that wasn't his call. Yeah. He, where the other...
0: So he ended up in the middle of Athens, serving in the, like, you know, in the middle of the city. He was, like you said, an uneducated person who... Basically, grew up like a like a bumpkin, yeah. you know, in an uneducated family, kind of salt of the earth. Went to Mount Athos as an adolescent. Yeah, fourteen years old, I think it was, he was. I might have been twelve. Oh, yeah, well, but he was. Yeah,
2: twelve when, was 12 when he took off. Fourteen when he finally.
0: That's right. When he That's right. He yeah. Said he could, at 14. But uh, but anyway, old. then he ended up as, as a a priest in one of the busiest areas in this metropolitan area.
2: At the hospital, too. Yeah, at the hospital. The church that was at the hospital, he actually, he was hand-picked. And he actually beat out a guy who was a, had a PhD. but who, who was a theologian, was you know, a yeah. theologian. And the, the doctors picked him over the other guy. Because yeah. He, you could feel his, you could feel the, Presence of the world. They
0: made an exception yeah. for him because he didn't have the qualifications required for that job. No. But yeah. Well, that's well when he
2: took up medicine. That's where he learned his medicine. Well,
0: remember a little boy came with a with a like a biology textbook book. into the church. And he he looked at the book and he said, I think he said, Can I borrow that? And he looked at it and he saw the human physiology and he's like, I've seen that before. When I see people and I see what's wrong with them. Oh, that's lungs Those are lungs. Those are called lungs. That's a liver. That's a spleen. That's, those are intestines. Like, He, he see, saw things, but he didn't know what to call them. And so he fell in love with the complexity of God's creation through his ability to see God's creation as it is. We're sort of sitting in our medical classes. Yeah, I know. It's amazing. What, what, the the huh? what century it was? Uh, this la- the last 20th century. Oh, okay. yeah. Yeah. yeah, he died in... The 90s. Into the nineties, yeah. yeah. Saint Porfirios here. I'll write his name down. I was going to say, give yourself five years to get the names right, and then you'll still mispronounce them. I actually happen to have. I have a little. I have a little book of his sayings with me today.
2: It's called Wounded by Love. It starts out, it starts out a with him telling his life story and then he goes into stories with people telling stories about him.
3: They need to make some movies
1: about these stories. Uh, oh, there's your mind. You see the simpropyrus, um, was he the one that went, um, in the boat with, uh, and his brother to the monastery to, to help them?
0: As a child? Yeah, that he killed. Yeah. yeah and he, he said, this is my nephew? Yeah, this is my nephew. Yeah. That's how he got under the Holy, Holy Mountain, as a young, because he was too young. And then that one brother will come and tell him, you know, build this rock. Mm-hmm. And then the other brother will come and... What are you doing? Oh, move it over move there. Move it over there. Yeah, and he exactly.
1: He never said, well, he told me he would do it. And then the other one will come and, and... Well, they were doing it on purpose. Yeah, exactly.
2: They were
0: hum- wearing him. Loving. They were humbling him, you know. God yeah.
1: And when he was able to see them coming... Um, you know, from across the mountain before they can come, he got the clairvoyance as a John. That's right. That's so what Mark
0: was talking about. To be able to to see that they were coming, and that's right. He he was clairvoyant. So when he said, "I saw you coming through the hill," they they were like, "Oh," and they understood. You know, they understood that. Yeah, that's right. The one also
1: that that field that can feel the water under. Yes.
0: Yeah. Yes. That's how. He, that's how
2: they built the monastery. They wouldn't yes. be able to build it without him finding the water. There
0: are things that are unbelievable. There are three. There are three volumes. There's a three currently three volumes of accounts from witnesses who spent time with him, who experienced many miracles. One, I'll tell you one about the water. There was a there was a guy who was uh, an Orthodox Christian investor and he was looking at building like a, a hotel or something on a piece of property. And he asked St. Porphyrios to come. Because St. Porphyrios, he wasn't out in the middle of nowhere. He was, for a lot of his life, he was in the thick of it around people. And so he made friends and they would say, can you come with me? We need to figure out if this is a good site and I need to know if, if there's water. And so he said, okay, I'll come with you. And they went to this nice, flat piece of land. And St. Porphyrios went off by himself. And the man kind of, he, he knew that he didn't, he would like his privacy, but he kind of followed him to observe what he was doing. And he said, he St. Porphyrios got down toward the ground and it was he went like this, like he was scooping water. There was nothing in his hands, but he's scooping water. And he was like tasting it. And he got up and he went, the man scurried off. And he came back and he said, you're right. There is a lot of water here, but it's no good. It's saline. It's full of salt. You can't, you could not use it. And so there were many times throughout his life, he had this unique ability to go and he could, oh, I tasted the water there. It's very sweet. Like you know, the monastery he built before he
2: right before he passed. Mm-hmm. It took that one of the reasons it took so long to build a monastery is they couldn't find water. Mm-hmm. He finally found water, and it was the sweetest
0: water he said he ever. <laughs> we experience things like this all the time. It's kind of funny. the The monastery called Saint Anthony's down in Arizona, um, Florence, was founded by a monk from Mount Athos who founded 19 monasteries in his lifetime. He came, he was a little Greek Orthodox monk who came over to the United States, barely spoke English, and over the course of his life founded 19 beautiful monasteries in the United States. St. John Monastery in Goldendale, Washington is one of them. And you've stopped off there, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. But... John- but- But at St. Anthony's Monastery, so the first place he went, he wanted to go out and and have a a place in like a remote kind of desolate area, you know, because it's conducive to simplicity and prayer. And he was looking at a piece of land and it was expansive and it was cheap. And he said, this is it. And the the realtor said, no, this isn't. There's no water here. And he said, yes, there is. And you're going to drill right here. And they thought he was insane. Why would we do that? There's there's no water, but it's your money. And they did, and they found a huge, like aquifer. And now out in the middle of nowhere in the desert in Arizona, they have orchards. You know, olives. I think they have olives, lemons, um, citrus. I mean, it's like an oasis out in the middle of nowhere. So these, these kinds of things are not uncommon in our tradition. In fact, they're just normal, you know. This from the
2: book, all the books you give me. It's yeah. Every one of the stories. This
0: so what, kind of so what we refer to, and you'll hear me say this more than once, what we refer to as miracles on earth, there really aren't miracles. It's just things that we were blind to before. In our blindness to the presence of God on earth. You know we forget that the earth is God's and he can do with it as he wants. It's malle- malleable, it's pliable. God God can can add or take away. You know God can grant someone the ability to see something that others cannot. So when someone is in tune with God, they're not bound by the limitations of creation itself. You know, they become unbounded and that's what you experience with those who are who really live charismatic lives. You know, it's interesting that there are people who have gone through the charismatic movement and they, they think it's about expressing themselves in prayer and freedom, and you've been there, Roberto. You know, um, I, I've passed through that in my experience too. But in the Orthodox tradition, you find people who are truly charismatic, really, in this, the lives of the saints
4: and elders. So... There's an idea... I heard as well that miracles done great reality and they show reality as
0: it is. That's one hundred percent correct. They show reality as it is. Yeah. It's not an it's not an exception or an aberration or something like that to reality. It's a revelation of it. Yeah. Yep, I agree with you. So let's talk a little bit about icons. We talked about the incarnation, talked about Christ as fully God and fully man. Remember, I just wiped it off of the board. I should have kept it there for you. But there are two essential things that we talk about when we're talking about about Christology, meaning who we believe Christ to be, that he is fully God and fully man, and two persons in one nature. So... The, the perfect union of the, the human and the divine without being separate persons. What, what happened at the fall of mankind was our willful separation from the love of God. You know, the, the separation of the creation, of falling into delusion, like I said today earlier, uh, the falling into the delusion that we could live as if God did not exist somehow or as if we could be independent of God. It's a delusion, it's not real. And, and so Christ, when he united divinity and humanity in himself, he healed that division, that delusion that we had fallen into, that illness. And we talk about the, um, the human condition more often as an illness rather than a, a status, especially not a, a legal status before God. And um, so, and we'll get into the, the, the more, more details about that later. But after talking about the fact that God became man in the person of Jesus Christ and he was visible to people, that he was encountered, that he was touched, that they came into contact with him, it's appropriate for us to talk about the significance of iconography. So let's talk about it. This little se- session that we'll do um, is called Icon of the Invisible God. And if, if we have time, then we'll go into talking about uh, the place is of Mary. Book, sir, yeah, your table. Oh, yeah. Do you guys want to grab s- and share? Sorry, forget about that. Sometimes If you want to pass them around. And maybe you, someone can find what page it is in the book. Special study. It's, well, it's on
2: 113 of mine, which means it's on 112.
0: Really, is it one page off? Yeah, five,
2: five, It's at
0: the five, end five. of chapter 6. Okay. What, what page, two page is pages it? Off. 111.
2: 111.
0: Okay. 111. So let's, get, let's jump in. When God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses, he specifically outlawed the making of idols. Idols. I'm thinking about whether or not I want to go on a tangent. No, I'll keep, I'll stay focused. He did so to prevent the people of Israel from creating an image of God from their imaginations. As the Apostle Paul said, We ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold, silver, or stone, graven by art and man's device. So um, another translation says, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. God is pure spirit. He has no material form. So when the writers of the scripture speak of the hand of God or state that God sees or hears, you hear that throughout the scriptures, they're using metaphorical language. While God allowed this kind of language about him to be used, um, how else could we speak about God? He drew the line at material representations, and this is still talking about the Old Testament, before the incarnation. God understood that man man had the tendency to formulate God's in his own fallen image. The prohibition against idols was a safeguard against thinking that man could somehow capture the infinite God by using created forms. The classic putting God in a box. Oh, there he is, you know. It depicts the angels who visited Abraham, who are seen as an image or a, a, a an appearance, a foreshadowing of our understanding of who God is. But God, God in His fullness, cannot be depicted completely. But we'll get into some of the nuance about it. Um, so, but. It was a protection against this idea that somehow, in our mind and even in pictorial form or physical form, we could capture the infinite God. The law of Moses, however, was a custodian or schoolmaster, according to St. Paul. Its purpose was to prepare the words the world," excuse me, for the coming of Christ. And with the advent of the Son of God in the flesh, man's relationship with God changed radically. John 1.18 says, I'm going to read a different translation than you guys have. John 1.18 says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father has declared him. So Jesus Christ, the icon of the invisible God, from Colossians 1.15, he's called the icon of the invisible God, came to reveal God to man and renew in man the image of God, which had been distorted by sin remember that quote that we ended with uh, by saint athanasius about the restoration of the painting at the incarnation the bodiless god took on a body the invisible one became visible to human eyes and iconography is the one uh, excuse me is one of the ways the church expresses her faith in the incarnation icons are not merely helpful illustrations they witnessed to the fact that the invisible God had become men. St. John of Damascus wrote this. His On the Divine Images is, is very helpful. He says, I do not adore the creation rather than the creator. And that's the, that's the fault, the problem with idolatry. To confuse creator and creation. To conflate the two. So he says, I do not adore creation rather than the creator, but I adore the one who became a creature, who was formed as I was, who clothed himself in creation without weakening or departing from his divinity, that he might raise our nature in glory and make us partakers of his divine nature. Therefore, I boldly draw an image of the invisible God, not as invisible, but having become visible for our sakes, by partaking of flesh and blood. I do not draw an image of the immortal Godhead, but I paint the image of God who became visible in the flesh, meaning we Christ can be depicted. Christ can. Now, I'm trying to remember if, no. One of the best defenses for iconography, I think, is... In the Bible. We like the Bible in the Orthodox Church, by the way. You know, uh, uh, we gave the world the Bible. Or the church did. I wasn't there at that time. But, you know, it really is the book of the church. But uh, what do I want to see? This is it. So the prologue, it's called, the first chapter of the Gospel of John, provides the best defense for iconography. And then we have many, many books explaining about the significance and meaning of iconography. But listen to this. Bear with me. We've talked about Christ as the the logos or the word of God. And so St. John, being more of the, the theological There was a man sent from God whose name was John, talking about John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to know his own, and his people did not receive him. So it talks about the word becoming flesh. And then, let's see, is there another passage I want to read to you? Yes. Also by St. John. In his um, epistle, his letter, 1 John. He says, so he talks about in the prologue to the gospel about the word of God becoming flesh. And then in 1 John 1, he says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest And we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So he uses the language of the senses. He uses the, the language of God becoming man, and having a direct encounter, hearing, seeing, and touching him. And iconography is a witness to the fact that God really did become man in the person of Jesus Christ. And so from the time that he became man, the church deemed it appropriate to to begin to, to depict him as such. Depict him and those who were with him, as, as a theological statement, but also as a as a, a teaching tool, you could say. And so um, icons are, we could say, visual, visual equivalents of the divine scriptures, in a way. Just as the Bible is not simply a book, icons are not simply pictures. I like to refer to them as theology in color. They're vehicles of revelation. They're they're saying something. They're speaking something. They're communicating something to us. Have you ever heard the saying, a picture is worth a thousand words? The same goes for iconography. When I look at the icon of St. Herman of Alaska, I think about the, the real man who lived on earth, who lived on Spruce Island in Alaska, who served children, who tended? Who nursed the sick? Who started an orphanage? You know, who made cookies for the kids? Who, whom, whom they still believe is alive? <laughs> you know, even though he passed to eternity. So you know, when we look, when we look at the icons of all of the saints, we look at the. We, it's a revelation of the reality of their existence, um, not just an idea or some nice form of religious art one of my favorite little moments was in an interview by a, a man I know named father Maximus Constus. he was a um, a monk on Mount Athos and 60 minutes was granted permission to go on to Mount Athos and do a little episode on uh, on Mount Athos you know the monastic republic of Mount Athos and up to that point there had only I think been one time really when uh, like journalists were allowed to come onto Mount Athos and they were talking to Father Maximus who's actually now over in Boston teaching at the seminary uh, they were talking to him about the icons that they had there at the monastery and one of them said, "Do do 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 do," you know, religious art. And he went, "Not art." And I thought it was it was incredible because he's this very articulate, gentle, self-controlled person, and so he says what he means. And so when they when they erred by referring to iconography as art, he had to correct them, because art is something that is mostly there for human enjoyment or human expression. And iconography is something divine and theological. Isn't it called writings somehow? Yeah, you know, that, so it's, that's a little debatable. <laughs> uh, I, our iconographer who does our, our um, hand-painted iconography that's on the walls and up front, she said, people get really worked up about this whole thing about writing icons. We don't paint icons, we write icons. He said in Russian, it's the same word. Write or paint. So she was like, I think maybe some converts kind of got excited about the idea. Oh, because painting makes it sound too banal or something like that. And so you could say, oh, we write icons to express that there's a deeper intention behind it. But she's like, but uh, people in the iconography community don't really mm-hmm. think about it too much. You just, you produce icons there. You could say, you know, you write it. Yes, you paint it. True. But you create an icon. So.
3: But I icons. Mm-hmm before
2: people started writing
0: down the words in the Bible yeah yeah yes exactly right so um, Saint, Saint Luke who wrote one of the gospels was was also the first iconographer well I would like to say I'd like to say God is the first iconographer because you know he, but because he he allowed he became flesh um, but um, but he, he's known as being the first one to depict um, Mary holding Christ as a child. And that's the prototype. That's the first version of this icon that is in every church to the left of the beautiful gates. Where's With, the original? Where is the original? Yeah, I don't know. And That's that's a great question. <laughs> you
1: saw in the 60 Minutes when the, the 60 Minute guy taught that he had seen beautiful... Churches, I mean, you know, mm-hmm. monasteries, that the different places that he went when he was in the mountain. But when they took him, and you know, they unlocked. Usually, two monks have the key when uh-huh. they had like that. That's way. right. I mean, I mean, I was like, wow. Yeah, where are they? It, yeah, they had an archive they had where an they archive. where they're preserving ancient icons. They have an atomic bomb over there, or something. <laughs> because You know how they have? the old all. No, yeah. No, dead one, dead person dead. no one person to to that has that access to that vault. This yep. is a sticker. He couldn't believe how yep. thick that vault was. <laughs> and one of my favorite yep. things from that video, everybody watched it, is yep. at the end when he took them to the, see the relics. Mm-hmm. the pile of, Like after a monk dies, they bury him in the, in the cemetery <sighs> in Uh-huh. There. That's right. And then they, after, I don't know how much.
0: Usually it's a few years. Then
1: mm-hmm. they take their bones out, yeah. and their relics out, and then they put them all together, mm-hmm. and then he says, well, and like, he asked them, when you see, the systematic guy asked them, when you see this, I mean, what do you think? And
0: he There's says, a room full yeah, of like <laughs> skulls and yeah. bones and things.
1: Yes. And he says, "That's I think of them as my... As my future like neighbors, my future roommates, my, roommates. my yes. future roommates, because I'll be there one day. Yeah. I'm like
0: wow. Yeah. So can you
3: find a picture of the original icon that St. Luke drew? Can you, well, I can you Google that? Or? Or Maybe. What does it look like? I'm just curious.
0: Well, it looks like that. I mean, well, you know, we have an icon of St. Luke painting the icon, but uh, <laughs> all but all of the icons are built on that representation. So.
2: Didn't the Templars
0: find it? I don't know. I don't I, I it, don't know. We can do a little research about that. Museum in
2: France. Yeah. It might because I know they, they took a bunch of icons and stuff like
0: that. Yeah, but they're also there there's when it comes to really, really old things like icons and relics, um, it it takes a lot to verify the uh, the authentic to authenticate them too. Like if someone one of my friends was telling me, like for example, we have the head of St. John the Baptist that has been preserved. Um, And uh, but but then he said, you know, like at the Vatican, the Roman Catholics have like uh, like several heads of St. John the Baptist. Meaning they're not all the head of St. John the Baptist. So, you know, it's hard. Sometimes it is hard to authenticate some of the things. But uh, but we but we do know that he was the first to create an icon of Christ the prototypical icon of Mary in Christ. and Christ so the icons are vehicles of revelation in their, it's like a sacrament of god's presence in a way to encounter an icon is to encounter something real something that 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 is a physical representation of the reality of god's physical presence so it's a it's it's to encounter something that's more than just a depiction, and just so you know, the word, the word in Greek that we translate as as icon, um, it also just means image. In Greek, icon and, and Latin imago, so icon image can be in translation; they can be used interchangeably. Saint Theodore the Studite, who also wrote in defense of the holy icons. He wrote, Jesus nowhere told anyone to write down the concise word, yet his image was drawn in writing by the apostles and has been preserved up to the present. Whatever is marked there with paper and ink, the same is marked on the icon with varied pigments or some other material medium. And it is significant to think about it. This is one of those things that helped me turn the corner toward respecting Christian tradition and leading me to orthodoxy is that uh, there, is the, th- there is no uh, book or letter or anything that, that Christ wrote. He didn't write anything on paper. He didn't leave us anything other than uh, the living letter that he was the life that he lived in the witness of those who directly encountered him who then wrote about him. So another reason why it's appropriate to depict him iconographically. So anyway, continuing on just as we encounter Christ in the scriptures. So we also encounter Christ and his saints in the holy icons. The seventh, the seventh, Ecumenical Council, that met in 787, decreed that the church must proclaim her faith in the incarnate Lord in words and in images. In doing so, she safeguards herself from those who would deny that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. On the first Sunday of Great Lent, we call it the Sunday of Orthodoxy, the church commemorates the final restoration of icons after the period of, Iconoclasm. Now, um, I don't need this Bible anymore. Um. So the word iconoclasm means uh, literally means icon or image smashing. So the iconoclasts or those who were. Against the depiction of God, either because they um, they were under Jewish influence and they uh, they had a mis a, a misapplication of the early commandment given by God, or um, some had fallen under uh, Islamic influence too, and during times of uh, as as Islam was becoming more prevalent and influential by force, there was also a lot of fear to to be in opposition to them, and they were they are iconoclasts. Absolutely, uh, they don't believe they believe that Christ is a is a good man and a prophet, but they don't believe that he's the very God of very God, as we say, and so therefore don't accept any depictions of him as such, they believe they are the true fundamentalists. They believe that the only way that God is revealed is through the writings of the scripture in the original language of their their Koran. And uh, our understanding of even the Bible, as much as we love the scriptures, the holy scriptures themselves, there is scripture. The scriptures bear witness to something greater than themselves. They're not an end in themselves. We love the scripture as a verbal icon, a verbal revelation, a written proclamation of the teaching of God. But our goal is not to encounter the Bible, just like our goal isn't to encounter wood and pigment, but to encounter the living God who is revealed through the scripture, who is revealed through the icons. And that's the true meaning of symbolism. The true meaning of symbolism... I'm getting excited with two two pens here. The true meaning of, of symbol is not one thing representing something else, but actually the bringing together. The bringing together. Sorry about my crazy writing.
2: Uh, the crazy writings, the writing little Oh, yeah, you you my notebooks. Yeah, it's but pretty it crazy. So, so, clear.
0: the bringing together. So, when we say, for example, um, if we were to say the bread, the bread and the wine are a symbol of God's presence in a way, we're not saying that they're not, that it isn't the body and blood of Christ. We're saying that actually, huh, it is the body and blood of Christ. It's united creation with Creator, and it's brought together what was once artificially separated. So, symbolism through the scriptures and iconography are not just um, you know neat metaphors or something like that, but the literal, the literal, actual, and literal bringing together of what was separated artificially through the fall. So, going back, uh, we celebrate the Sunday of Orthodoxy and the final restoration of icons after iconoclasm, which took place in um, 843. On this day, the church reaffirms her commitment to proclaim that the whole, uh, whole council of God and to hold fast to the apostolic tradition delivered once for all to the saints. Quoting from Jude 3, icons, therefore, are not a matter of decoration or art, but an essential element of the Orthodox faith. Because of the doctrinal importance of icons, the church has developed strict rules or canons, guidelines, concerning their creation. Not every religious picture can be considered an icon. And above all, an icon must convey the inner spiritual meaning of the person or event depicted. The beauty of an icon stems not from the physical beauty of the subject, but from the inner beauty of a life transformed by divine grace. The Son of God came to restore the divine image in man, and iconography is the graphic witness to this restoration. So that's why we also depict the saints, because the saints are those in whom we can say that the, the miracle of God's presence has uh, has taken place. You know, each we say that the person is created, using the, the language of the book of Genesis, that the person is created in the image of God. And so our healing is the restoration of the image of God within us. So those who have taken that seriously... Many we, we know, but many more we don't, whose names we do not know. But there are many in whom the, the saving grace of God by the Holy Spirit has, you could say it's taken, you know what I mean? They've, they've allowed themselves to become transparent to the grace of God. And the image is renewed within them. One of the things that comes up oftentimes is... Uh, So, yeah, I'm having an inner dialogue while I'm trying to talk to you. Um, Is the question of idolatry, you know, whether or not icons are uh, idols. And of course the church would patently say that they are not. Because idolatry means the worship of something other than God and we don't worship we don't worship anything other than god but we but we love god and we love his creation and so we interact with it in an appropriate manner but we never confuse god with his creation we love creation because it is created by him just like i can come up and give you a hug or even give you a kiss on the cheek and say, I love you. And you wouldn't say, you're an idolater. You know what I mean? You would never say that to me. I mean, if because I uh, be- to if I started bowing down to you, yeah, and saying, yeah, teach, show me, teach me your ways or whatever, you know, sure. Um, but um, so one of, one of the questions that comes up is, yeah, how is it not idolatry? Well, because it is not the worship of anything other than God. And in the church tradition and in the, the the Greek language in particular, you know, there's a lot that's lost in translation. There's an important distinction. I won't do the Greek words because I don't know. I think it's fun for me, but I don't think it really helps anyone. But there's um there's a distinction between worship and do you know what the other word is? Veneration. Veneration. Well, like an effect of when we pray to Mother
2: Mary's icon, we're praying to her as our intercessor to God. So that's not—you're not really
0: yeah. worshiping. No, you're not worshiping. Like you're praying I, to her like to I, help you out. I come from the Protestant world, for example, my background. Where they don't think she's well, so listen though. So they, but, but we would always ask each other. We'd say, "Will you pray for me?" We would always say that. Will you pray for me? And we wouldn't say, "Oh, you're putting." another person as a mediator between you and God, because what happens when people are united in Christ? They're brought to one another, and God works in our lives through one another. And so we would we would never consider it to be idolatry to ask another person to pray for you. And so when we seek the intercessions of the saints, what are we doing? We're asking another person to pray for us. And someone who is, in her case, who's closer, closer to God than anyone else, because she's the only one who held God, the God-man in her womb, you know, who gave birth to God. And that's why we call her the mother of God. And we seek her prayers uniquely because she has a special relationship with him in a way that only kind of a mother would understand, you know. But we make an important distinction between worship and veneration. And worship is that which is due only to God. I have a really good article about this that I could send you guys. I have all these things I tell you that I'm going to send you and then I forget about it and I need, I need someone to give me a little checklist at the end of every class because you want to see that 60 minutes video on Mount Athos and then there's a good article on worship and veneration that see I published it on my website a while back so I could easily go find it and uh, send it to you but worship is acknowledging that God is God and there, God is the Lord and there is no other God beside him and everything is exists on account of god being brought uh, excuse me on account of god bringing it into existence and then veneration is a respect for that which was created by god you know the the appropriate affection that we have for that which has significance because of god like i said If someone grabbed a a picture of a loved one, this is a a popular example that's given with regard to iconography. If someone grabbed a, a photo of their grandfather who had passed away 10 years ago and they said, Oh, Grandpa, I just miss you so much. And they were to kiss that icon and hold on to it. That person would not be accused of idolatry either. They would just be Accused, if even, (laughs) of loving their grandfather. That's not a bad accusation at all. And so why do we, why, one of the simple answers I like to give as to why we venerate icons. I mean, throughout the history of mankind, kissing has always been a sign of respect. Watch old movies. You'll see the kids kiss their parents' hands. You'll see someone kiss the the signet on a king's hand. I mean, just throughout history, vener- kissing has always been a sign of respect. So what is? That? And so just a sec. And so what I would want to say is, we venerate simply because veneration is an act of of love. Why do we kiss? Why do we kiss the icons? Why Why would I venerate the icon of Christ? Because I love Christ. Why would I kiss an icon of the Theotokos because I, I love her, like my family in Christ? Why would I venerate the icon of Saint Herman or Saint George or Saint John Chrysostom because I love them too, and I benefit? I'm so thankful to them. So, anyway, what's what's your what's your question?
3: Well, what is it? Okay, so don't pray to the dead. I always get that, like, oh, you know. Well, they're not dead. Yeah. Well, my question is.
0: Who is the dead they're talking about? Don't pray to the dead or for the dead? Is it people in hell or is it So I'll need to know the exact reference. Mm-hmm. Can't remember what the verse is, but it's like
3: just it's like basically don't pray to the dead. To the dead. To the, the dead
0: or whatever. Mm-hmm. Is that I don't know where it's at. I don't know. Let's look it up.
4: I'm just
0: wondering, what, who is the dead that's being... Does so anybody know which yeah. verse
3: we're i are talking about? I, I, I think I, I recognize what you're talking about, but I don't know where it is. When uh-huh. Solomon was about to fight the
2: Philistines, he and both
4: Samuel the prophet, and Samuel the prophet
0: yelled at him and said, don't pray to we are dead, or something like that. Right? Mm-hmm. I can't remember, but I know I... Well, and also, not, so, so, it, after, so after the resurrection, um, after the resurrection, there... There is an understanding that death has been slain the christian understanding is that those who have died in christ to be you know like like the new testament says to be absent from the bodies to be present with the lord like that those who have died are not subject to death like those in the days of old before death was slain through christ's death and resurrection and so well, let's, let's dig into it. Let's look it up. Can I look it up? I yeah, know well, let's get it. Let's see what the fathers say about it. Let's, so over the course of this week, okay. um, send me the reference okay. and we can start our next session with, with that. Okay. I'll, I'll look it up because I have a, I have like a 30-volume set of com, little quotes and commentaries by the church fathers okay. of the entire Bible. And we'll see if we can find it. I always wondered that. There's no doubt. The dead that they're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, let's look it up this week. Now, that, that way we can give a proper answer, okay?
4: Father, yeah. well. so I'm kind of thinking that, well, the point with the saints, is kind of like a ladder that you can look up, where you look at one person who's gotten them, and then that scales all the way back up to the source, which is Christ mm-hmm. and Father. Life but
0: itself, yeah.
4: It seems to me that there's two different ways that can go wrong, where, Let's say that somebody becomes obsessed with with the angel Michael Mm -hmm. and in his own way focuses too much on Michael so that he can't see God anymore so he's falsely putting Michael in a place that he shouldn't be Mm -hmm. and that's from the bottom up but then there's the other angle where the angel itself can fall where that's more of the top down and it's a It's something taking worship onto itself, you're filling different lower images that shouldn't be taking worship onto itself. Mm -hmm. I'm not even sure exactly what my question is. I'm trying to take away that there's two. If there's a way that it's supposed to go correctly, which is it's right respect and right veneration leads to right worship mm-hmm. it seems like there's two ways that it can go wrong which is that the wrong respect of the right thing can lead you astray but also mm-hmm. there can be the nature of the thing falling itself that can lead you astray even if you have good intentions mm-hmm. and i don't know if i articulated that well but
0: I know what you're talking about. I mean, to some extent. Um, especially the first part. You, you, you know what he's saying? I have a good reference for that. So
3: in Revelations 22 9, I found where John, the apostle, right, after, I believe it was saying, Angel Gabriel, mm-hmm. who was giving him the revelation. Mm-hmm. And then after, like, in chapter 22, he's like, after he's received the whole thing, right, he falls down and worships him. Mm-hmm. And then I, I found the scripture where he said, okay, "And yeah, he said, yeah, do not worship me. I am a fellow servant with you and with your fellow prophets, with all who keep the words of this scroll. Worship God alone." Mm-hmm. Right? And um, he's, a, he's a angel, you know. So I think yeah. that's what he's else so like, you can probably go too far with. That's right. Sometimes people can Ooh. get carried away with veneration, and it turns into worship.
0: That's right. If they become more, well, the, the idea of the saints is that they, I mean, not the idea, the experience of the saints is that they, they're so in love with Christ that they live lives that are inspiring us to, to fall in love with Christ. They're so filled with the grace of the Holy Spirit that they inspire us to want to, to live that inspired life, you know? Not to draw attention to themselves or bear witness to themselves in any way. Father,
1: Father Jeremiah, I really like what St. Cosmos from Australia. Mm-hmm.
2: Saint
0: Father. Father yeah.
1: Cosmos. Fermal Cosmos said. About the saints, you really learn you have to learn about the particular saints and then so you get an understanding of what you venerate. So mm-hmm. venerating an icon, say of St. Paul when I go to venerate St. Paul, it's like a portal of somebody that was real, right there Mm -hmm. with Jesus himself, Mm -hmm. my Lord and God, and he was, you know, there, and, you know, I mean, Peter, Peter or Paul, Mm -hmm. and, you know, he lived at those times, so when I'm venerating, it takes me back in time. In the presence mm-hmm. of that icon, and say if, like my sister said, well, why are you venerating angels? You know, if, don't you know that we're supposed to judge angels? And I said, well, I'm venerating an angel because I know what angels are. <laughs> I'm not venerating an angel. I'm paying, you know, respect to the, you know, the angel Gabriel or the guardian archangel Michael. Mm-hmm. I said not because you know, I'm better than they, or, you know, I'm going to be judging them. Who am I? Yeah. I mean, they're there, the right hand of God, you know, they were the envoys to the, the Teotokos are bringing mm-hmm. the good news of that, you know, God incarnate, <laughs> you know, so yes, I'm thankful for them. So I'm saying thank you mm-hmm. for doing your diligent job and you know on serving god at the right hand of god for us for mankind
0: there's also something very interesting that that you and i don't encounter very often um if ever is uh, that that we do we do see in the lives of some of the saints and i I like to refer to saint jacobos a lot he's a contemporary saint who died in the 90s um which means Jacob in Greek, of Evia, and many and many of the lives of the saints, like like you were saying about miracles, they they just reveal what's real, rather than being an exception to reality. Well, one of the things that's common in the lives of the saints is they become very aware of the presence of one of one another. You know, Sinyakovos many times would directly interact with many of the those who had gone before the patron of their monastery saint david um he would interact with him a lot he would beg for his i mean not beg he would demand (laughs) in a way that i've never encountered before it was really scandalous to me at first he would tell saint david if you don't pray for this person's healing i'm going to lock your head away in the cabinet or something like that. I mean, there's just, there's a direct boldness, like a relationship, a real relationship of direct encounter. So for a lot of us, the the saints represent an idea of those who have come before us. But they are the great cloud of witnesses with whom we are in communion. Does that mean
3: they're omnipresent or omnipresent? Because
0: they can hear? Is no. Um, God no, I mean, but... But see, those who are those who are united with God are are not are not confined by time and space the way that we are. It doesn't mean they're om, omniscient or omnipresent, but 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 it means that they're not limited by the confines of time. And you actually experience stories like that in the lives of the saints, where incredible things happen, where someone someone goes on a trip that should take three hours and they get there, and, or they, they they go on a trip that takes three hours for them, and then they arrive 30 minutes later at their destination. There's a story from the life of St. Porphyrios, where they're supposed to get to the monastery in 30 minutes or something like that, and everyone's stressed out, they're going to close the gate of the monastery. and He goes, oh, don't worry about it. And they were on the road for three hours, and they showed up, and they were like, what are the nuns doing still up? And they looked at the clock, and only 30 minutes had gone by. Same with St. Iakovos. He was walking down the street, and this happened in the life of St. Nicholas Planas and others, where they would be walking down the road, and someone in a vehicle, like a carriage in the life of St. Nicholas or a car, um, in the life of St. Iakovos, they would say, do you need a ride? And they'd say, oh, don't worry about it. We're going to the same place. No, it's okay. And they'd, they'd be walking slowly down the road, and... You know, they'd get there. They'd be getting close to the church, and they'd see the same person they passed a few miles back in front of them, turning into the monastery or the church. What? How did that happen? And so, there, the the confines, the the harsh confines of time and space, are are kind of artificial confines. It's not us who banded to the to the creation. It's actually the creation that is at the the beck and call of God and at his service. And so for those who are close to God in that way and who are doing his will, see, it's not just, it's not like like they decide, oh, I'm going to do something cool here and like impress a lot of people by, by walking behind them and then showing up ahead of them or something like that, you know. But um, it's, it's always something that God is doing through them. It's always something that God is revealing through them. It's not something that they're just doing on their, you know, on their own accord. Definitely. What
3: about like saints and martyrs who haven't been like, canonized? I
0: mean, do mm-hmm. they,
3: are they just kind of in the dark up there? Like no,
0: the no, no,
3: they're
0: in no. They're the best. They, you know. I think they're the best. The ones who whose names are not known, because you know what? They have no earthly glory. They were they they anonymously you could say bore witness to Christ. Whose Christ names we and when we commemorate, we do a Sunday of all saints, and we commemorate all the saints who we know and whose names we do not know. And I think that those ones are the most blessed. I would I would I think it would be a good practice for us to 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 ask for the intercessions of those saints whose names we do not know because they have a special place of humility before God and not before men. I have
3: a special example of that. Yeah. So in Mexico, 100 years ago. Are you Spanish? Yes. Yeah, I can tell. Um, 100 years ago in Mexico, there was a great persecution of Christians. And uh, a lot of people don't know that. But there's a movie about it. There's songs about it called La Cristiana.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> where, <laughs> but they will give their life to Christ. They will have to... Hit their yeah. their uh, icons. I mean, the images of God under their mm-hmm. clothing because they would get executed. Yeah. Wow! Huh. And, um, it was a very evil
3: president. Mm-hmm. Like, um, and in Mexico, there was only Catholicism. Yeah. So it's so sad. There's There's this movie called For Greater Glory. Mm-hmm. It talks all about it. And um, there's uh, they were killing the priests. They were shooting people, and, mm-hmm. this horrible, horrible. and then <laughs> the church actually, all the, the Catholics actually took up arms and uh, basically fought the back the government. Mm-hmm. And it was literally a war, it was like a holy war to mm-hmm. defend uh, the religious freedom of Mexico. Mm-hmm. Because they were kind of like communists, they were trying to spread. Yeah. Anyways, um, but a lot of people who would help the Cristero soldiers, they would actually walk with this big picture of Jesus or the vision mm-hmm. of the virgin mm-hmm. and it would say long live, long live Christ the king um, and the virgin of Guadalupe mm-hmm. and people would die for, for having it yeah and, uh,
0: there's a story of, that's what uh, happened uh, in, in even in the you know the the early centuries this, the 6th 7th yeah, century yeah, the 7th into the 8th century of the christianity
3: to tangent, but there was a mm-hmm. kid named San Jose de you know, Rio he was a really brave Fourteen-year-old martyr. He was tortured to death for being captured in battle, and uh, very sad story. Mm-hmm. I didn't get emotional thinking about it. Yeah, but they—they um, they, he wasn't canonized till like a hundred years later. But they attributed a lot of miracles to his intercession. Mm-hmm. Right? So, before he was canonized, yeah. Yeah, so
0: yeah. That's, that's a common. That's a that's a pretty common occurrence in the Orthodox tradition too. It's like they're. There are people who recognize, like there's a saint that a lot of you guys know about, um, Majishka Olga Michael, who lived in Alaska. And uh, she hasn't been officially canonized, but there are many people who have experienced miracles through her prayers. We're just waiting for it to to officially take place. And And many, many others. And there are others who will never be officially recognized as saints because it's not about getting the title. You know, they don't need the title they have the reality of it, so you know what I mean. Orthodoxy isn't about getting the T-shirt. I like to jokingly say, you know what I mean, like oh, holy or something like that. It's about being. It's about it, a transfiguration of the very being that God has given you. You know, a restoration again to the image of God, and and then holiness means being. United with God who, who alone is holy. And then bearing witness to the holiness of God. And that's what the saints do. They're not trying to draw attention to, the, to themselves. None of them would say, you know, don't you think I'm amazing? Look at me or anything like that. I mean, they would always, they're always, they want to be transparent. Like if you see them, they would want you to see through them and see Christ on the other side. Or see Christ in them. And so that's what it means to be a Christian, you know, to, to, to be one in whose life Christ is revealed.
1: Like when um, Father Cosmos said about when you learn about the saints, you, you get to know them and you see right through them through to the life of Christ. Yeah, that's right. It makes you really appreciate that individual saint. And he goes into saying, you know, how much Satan hates for... Uh, people to get to know the saints and to pray to what uh, and venerate icons. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't, you know, because it's like a, a war with him once you begin to know the icons and the meaning of the icons, mm-hmm. what they really represent, you see right through the icon into what they did or what they have done for mm-hmm. Christ.
0: Yeah, it's more than it's more than just a two-dimensional picture and their icons are kind of popularly referred to as a, like a window to heaven. They're always pointing beyond themselves. There's a there's a really good book if you're interested in iconography. I won't say religious art. If you're interested in iconography, there's a really good book called The Art of Seeing. Art of seeing by, well, he's Father Maximus. It's that same one that I was telling you about. But, but it, it, it might be under his previous name, Nicholas. Forgive my crazy writing again. Constance is his last name. Huh. And it's a really good book. Very beautiful, insightful. And if you're interested in iconography at all, learning more about it and how we approach it and and, uh, kind of, you could say, read or interpret iconography. There's also a website that I refer people to a lot called Icon Reader, iconreader.wordpress.com. And you should check that out, Icon Reader. And it's WordPress. He hasn't done any updates for, for a long time. Um, okay, .com. But it, it doesn't really matter because um, it's, it's a really thorough website. I mean, you can look up almost any icon of any feast, any of the feast days, the Holy Trinity, or a Hospitality of Abraham icon that you're talking about. Um, and it gives a really nice explanation of what, what it means. You know, what is this little hand like? There's a little hand coming down in the corner of some of the icons like of St. George. What does that mean? What do the colors mean? There's a lot of nuance because because we live in a very verbally based culture. We're not as in tune with nonverbal communication. We're not as in tune with what's being communicated in through the use of line and perspective and color. Like. Maybe people of the past would have been. If you wear a certain color, it would mean something. Have you ever heard people say, wear a red tie? It's a, what is it, a power tie or something? What do they call it? You know, it's kind of funny, but it is true. I mean, color evokes different things. And we use colors throughout the liturgical cycle of the year to reveal different things, too. And we could we could go into another 40 minutes talking about all of the different liturgical colors, but we're not going to because we only have six minutes left. Well,
2: they, all, all the books that I've read and the saints talk about, and the elder talked about how it, what, the color of the icon was important. You just didn't go over there and slap something. Exactly. The that's right. Mean,
0: it, kind of it has a significance it, to it. That's, that's right. I so, I yeah, okay. What is it?
2: I know that. I know science has proven that it's real, but churches—I don't know if they have accepted it yet. But the cloth of Tehran, oh yeah, they considered an icon. Would you consider that an icon? They've proven that it's real. Yeah, but the churches—they've <laughs> <are just, laughs> no, the proven it. They've found it through. The shroud, yeah, because yeah, they—the they, last—the last
1: thing that they did now they have they, <laughs> they said yeah. that the original pieces have taken. I know. It was from a repair. So now that they had the actual technology to do the 3D printing, they were saying that um, the latest research that they did on it said that it was the way that they, they there is no machine that, that if you take a Xerox machine, a copy of machine, actually, uh-huh. it would take, um, to, to do that image, um, it would take that there's an, an explainable light that took to create mm-hmm. that image. Yeah. There, there is, there, the machine doesn't yeah. exist. Yeah. Not, not in the
2: so,
0: we, so I'll just yeah. say generally we accept the uh, the authenticity of it.
2: Yeah, well, they said that basically what it came down to is they said that there isn't enough electricity on the planet to be able to mm-hmm.
0: transfer you know, and they, they the image.
2: The, the other things they found in the knee area and in the elbow area they found on the cloth they found dirt that you can only find in Jerusalem, outside. Yeah, interesting. They also found they also found splinters of wood on the cloth that match the cross that we have now that we already know was the cross that he carries. The wood matches mm-hmm. up with that. Yeah. The cross. So there. I mean, they have yeah, so the many thing things now. The they so they're the pretty the much data. sure mm-hmm. that the latest that's thing they did the
1: DNA and the DNA that they traced it to a, a particular tribe, and when they traced the tribe, is related to the Teotocos. And that particular tribe oh. is like it's like a tribe that is so pure that it doesn't intermarry with any mm, other mm-hmm. tribe. And they tested one of the young girls. And it was only one out of the DNA strand, Correct. only one little piece matched that tribe that it was the most pure. And that's the closest match that they got to. Mm-hmm. It's only-
2: he only has
1: one. It's incredible. He only has
0: one. But what's so? What's this? What's the point of all of it, though? What what's the point behind all of that? I mean, behind whether or not it's real and stuff. I mean, it's it's nice to authenticate it and yeah. believe. But and the the point is that Christ is real. Yeah. You know yeah. that the God man the that <laughs> yeah. I think it's yeah. like to have people like, like myself personally. I'm very interested
3: in science. I just got this book about it, um, science matching of the Bible, and I think it. Helps mm-hmm. people to yeah, uh, well, so they, say, like strengthen their. That's right.
2: You know? Well, you said you couldn't build an ark. There's an ark the same an size an down in Tennessee. Top- yeah, there's yeah. <laughs> the guy there's the it guy built, and it floats. So it, it yeah, yeah. all it's right,
0: done. we have a few minutes left, okay. and I wanted.
2: But would that be considered? Would that hit the it? It would be
0: considered more like a relic than an icon. I mean, yeah, that's what that's.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, well, it's an, it, it is, I mean, it is, it is an icon of Christ. I mean, it's an image of Christ who is, who is the living icon of God. So, you know what I mean? It's, it's fascinating. Yeah, it is fascinating. So how to venerate icons. Most of you know, most of you have, have been coming to church for a while but uh, but when we do this session, I like to give a little demonstration on just how to venerate. Because I see people do all kinds of different things. Yeah. Everyone kind of has their own little, why did they do this? And then the next person in the line did something a little different. One did a half bow, one did a full bow, one did a three crosses. And then what, you know what I mean? All kinds yeah. of different things. And so there is a, there's a little bit of variety in, in Orthodox Piety, you could say, the way people express themselves in worship, but uh, but when I am catechizing people, I like to kind of give them all clear guidance on how we how I instruct people to venerate icons. It's was pretty typical practice, so I'm going to show you, and I'm going to bring my little voice recorder with me for in, for whoever listens in. but when you approach when you approach an icon, first of all. We make the sign of the cross, which we've talked about in the past, and we'll probably talk about it again. But you put your three, your first three fingers together, representing our belief in the Holy Trinity. And then the last two fingers come down, representing the two natures of Christ, Christ who came down to earth. And we make the sign of the cross from our head to our abdomen, right shoulder to our left shoulder. That's how we make the sign of the cross. And the sign of the cross is a prayer or as some of you know, I like to call it orthodox sign language. You know, people people are always getting on uh, traditional Christians' cases about outward uh, forms of worship and things like that. It's like, but they never condemn someone who speaks sign language. Sign language is a form of communication, is it not? Using your hands to communicate words. And, um, and so... This is a form of sign language. It's a way of expressing what we believe without words. And it's an appropriate way. I mean, have you ever changed your facial expression? Ever? Yes, you're all doing it right now. What is he talking about? By changing your facial expression, you're communicating something that is beyond words. By changing your posture by leaning over or turning away from someone, you're constantly communicating with your body. And so we want to to communicate appropriately with the whole of our being, not just the words that we say, but with our actions. And the church has always understood that a living being is not just a a thought, but is an action. You know, we are people... whose bodies are in motion and always communicating, and what we do matters. So we make the sign of the cross. We do bows and we do prostrations, and we venerate icons, to name a few things. And so when we enter the church, it's appropriate. When you're entering in, crossing the threshold of the church, You, we generally make the sign of the cross um, as, a, as a form of reverence for the temple of God, for the place where heaven and earth collide, you could say. And then we walk up to the center icon and make the sign of the cross once. And if you can, not everyone has a good back or good knees, so keep that in mind, and that's okay. But you make the sign of the cross, and if you can, as an act of humility, touch the ground in front of you. Make the son of the cross and bow again and touch the ground in front of you. So two, cross and bow. Then venerate the icon, the hand of the saint, or if if it's an icon of Christ and his feet are available, venerate the feet of Christ, but the hand of of a saint. So venerate the hand. In this case, there's a little relic here so we can kiss the relic. And after you've venerated then, you make the sign of the cross and bow one more time. Now, you'll notice because we get a little backup here sometimes, people will do their cross twice. They'll venerate. And then they'll kind of step off to the side. Have you ever seen that? Someone was like, what does that mean? If they go off to the side, I mean, is that an appro- Is that?" something that you have to do because everyone's trying to they they know like everyone knows that we're intentional about what we do here but that's really just because they're getting out of the way so that the next person while I'm doing my last bow the next person can start doing their bows to venerate the icon and so when you have icons in your own home too it's appropriate to greet them I call it greeting the saints and as you get to know the saints more, you'll find that there are certain ones, it's, it feels like we discover them, but it also feels like they're finding us. Certain saints that we can relate to that, that teach us something about God that needed to be healed within us. Something that inspires us. And so as we get to know the saints more, there are those whom we, kinda, we seek out, whose writings we really appreciate, or whose presence even we appreciate, we feel drawn to. And so over time, again, as you get to know the saints and hear about them, read their writings, and hear the stories of their lives in the church services, you'll start acquiring here and there. We always start with the icon of Christ and of the Theotokos holding Christ, ideally. And then kind of build out from there in your home. And it's appropriate to have at least an icon of Christ to begin with. Or Christ and the Theotokos, which is really an icon of the incarnation. Usually kind of like we have in the church. You can have, use that as your model. You don't have doors in a sanctuary, but you know, those two icons. And then you can have... Maybe a patron saint that you're drawn to, like yours, will be the Holy Prophet David. So you put maybe the Holy Prophet David right underneath. Maybe you really love St. Porphyrios, and so you add Porphyrios off to the side. Maybe you're drawn to the Holy Archangel Gabriel, and so you put the, archangels, the Archangel Gabriel, or you like both Arch- Archangel Gabriel and Michael. You put them up like we have you know, in the front of the church. And over time, you know, you'll create what we call a prayer corner, which is like your own connection to the church at home it's a place where you continue the work that we do here appropriately and necessarily at home because you're a member of the church you know you're you are striving to be to connect what we believe and what we do here with what you do in your daily life and so saint john chrysostom famously says that the home is to be a domestic church. So we want our home to be a place of prayer, a place that is not foreign to prayer, a place where it should be natural to open up your prayer book or open up the Psalms and read them, to crack open the Scriptures maybe even more than once a day and read them. You know what I mean? If you come here and I start telling you about the lives of the saints, you're not going to be surprised. Or if I open up the Bible, although I don't know, some people might accuse us of surprising them if an Orthodox person opened up the Bible. But, uh, but anyway, because this is, it's, it's natural for that to take place here, and we want that to extend to our homes. Traditionally, you would walk into an Orthodox home There would be a candle lit in front of the, or an oil lamp going in front of the icons continuously, 24-7, representing the ceaselessness of God's presence and the ceaseless prayer that we're striving for. Most people don't feel comfortable leaving a flame going at home when they leave. I did it for a while, but then um, I was told that I wasn't allowed to because... My wife didn't want our house to catch on fire, but so it would be a kind of an act of faith if you were to keep it going. But it's not a, a test of faith that you need to you know pass. But then, if you don't leave it going continuously, then what would what would happen is you would come home, go to the icon corner and light the candle, or the lamp in the icon corner first thing, and make the sign of the cross and greet the saints who are present there, just like they are here. And uh, it becomes a part, a natural flow, a part of your life. A question like, yeah.
2: on the lower icons, I can't bend over, so you're
0: just doing that? Oh, yeah, some not, people, some people do it. that. And we have those little ones mostly for kids, you know, to, because it's, it's cute to see little kids try to reach up and get the big ones. But we actually had a guy made, make some of these small icon stands specifically for kids to venerate them. So, because
2: like up here, you know, you got the case where you have eight bones in
0: it. The relics. Yeah. Yeah, Mm -hmm. So whatever you can do, I mean, if you can put your lips to it, then do it. But if you can't, then some people will, they'll cross and bow and then they'll kiss their hand and reach in order to come into contact with it rather than none at all. So, yeah, that's okay. Just don't do it as a rule. Like, I mean, if you can actually venerate an icon, do do that. Yeah. And then it's an exception when something's a little out of reach or something like that. Or if it's, yeah, if it's hard to physically to do it, that's okay. All right. Um, so I'll stop there for now. There's a little more that I could talk about, but we're nine minutes over, and I want to respect your time. So... Um, But I do want to say The Art of Seeing is a good text on iconography. The writing of St. John of Damascus, he has three treatises on divine images. If you're interested in going deeper into the theology and the defense of the icon, you can look up St. John of Damascus. And also, we also read from St. Theodore the Studite. Studite is someone from the Studion Monastery in Constantinople. Um, St. Theodore also wrote a book called On the Holy Icons that's very helpful if you're interested in that and you'd like a reminder of the names of those books or anything, send me a note okay? and I can send you a link or just the names whatever whatever helps let's uh, end with a simple prayer through the prayers of our Holy Fathers, may the Lord Jesus Christ our God have mercy on us and save us Amen